So, Miles, here's what I don't get about the gifted. Do tell. Why the Struckers? I mean, Fenris? Seriously? I'm still a little hazy on that whole thing. It would be really, really hard for me to buy the comic Struckers as protagonists. Yeah, in the comics, they pretty much are the worst. Well, plus they're dead, or at least Andrea is, or at least she was. It's complicated. Wait, didn't they just show up in Generation X? They've actually been back for a while. You know, perks of knowing all the mad scientists. I can't imagine Andreas lasting too long after Andrea died. I mean, you know, the first time she did. Oh, no, he did okay. But didn't their powers require them to be in physical contact? Only if you ignore the existence of the powers of wealth and amorality. Okay, fair. And the fact that Andreas had a sword that let him access their joint power set. Because it was magic? Because the hilt was covered in his sister's skin. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 171 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to another time and another place, because we are covering an alternate universe comic, but like, a pretty awesome one. Yeah, so we're looking today at X-Factor Forever. Now, you've heard Miles and Elizabeth talk about New Mutants Forever, which is another series based on the same premise. If the late 80s, early 90s writers and a couple main X titles had been able to continue their runs um, from the point that they had, they had left the books. In this case, Louise Simonson on X-Factor. Yeah, so X-Factor Forever, which officially takes place on Earth TRN-237, for those of you keeping track, this was released in 2010, but it comes continuity-wise right after X-Factor number 64 from March of 1991. That is like 19 years later, which is pretty impressive. That's, of course, continuing from Louise Simonson's landmark five-year run on X-Factor. One of the things I think X-Factor Forever does particularly well is bridge that gap. You've got uh, Dan Panosian on art with this ang- angular, sketchy, very modern art style. And Simonson, who's written a lot of more modern comics, but who is hearkening back to a writing style that's very much out of vogue now, but was very much what she was using when she was on X-Factor. Yeah, that's, I think, one of my favorite things about this series. Like, when Elizabeth and I covered New Mutants Forever, it was recognized to be the New Mutants, but it seemed like a strange place for the series to go, and the characters didn't seem quite right. With this, like, the art looks more modern, yes, but I would totally buy this as what would have happened next in X-Factor, and it also serves as a really good conclusion to what Simonson had been going for. Yeah, New Mutants Forever feels to me very much like modern Claremont writing, or at least modern Claremont at the era when it came out. This, to me, feels like 2010 Louise Simonson channeling 1991 Louise Simonson. Yeah, it's it's pretty seamless. I'm not going to say perfect, but I was quite satisfied. It's also got what, for me, is the absolute defining feature of this book and this timeline, which is the best jacket in the X-Universe. Yeah, we get some costume redesigns. We'll talk more about that, but Cyclops' design is particularly sweet. I covet that jacket deeply, profoundly, and continually. Totally legit. I kind of want Beast's pants. But anyway, so how does one go about reading a comic in 2010 when this came out, or say 2017 now, when the other stuff came out so far before? Why one looks at the back for the X-Factor Forever Saga. There's also a brief recap at the beginning of what had happened in the previous issue, but the X-Factor saga, like the New Mutant saga, and as distinct from the saga that involves um, space people and wars and babies with little horns and wings, gives a more thorough recap of the point of the series up to the point where Forever jumps in. One thing that really interested me is when you're looking at the X-Factor Forever saga, which is in the back of, of Forever number one, um, you see that there are various panels from various comics, and toward the end, in the issues that were never reprinted in Marvel Unlimited or never collected into trade, it's very clear that the panels that they're bringing in are from old yellowed comics that they just scanned in. I kind of love that, and I also really, really love the way Panosian uses digital zipatone in his art. There are a lot of really good visual nods to the fact that it's picking up an older series. And those very, very pointed conceits really underline that nicely. Totally. Yeah, he was a good choice. And on issues two through five, we also have Eric Wynn inking. The art does definitely look very different under him. Uh, It looks a little more anime, also a little sketchier. I think it's sufficiently stylistically consistent that if you're not specifically looking for it, you wouldn't really see anything disjointed about it. 
wait, wait, other people don't look specifically for inkers when they read comics? Have I just gotten corrupted by doing this podcast for three and a half years? Am I broken forever, Jay? I mean, I think living with me for a long time may have kind of ruined you on that front, too. That's true, that's true. Comics editor got pretty deep into your marrow back in the day. This is what we do now. This is who we are. Oh, no, scary guy from Community. Uh, anyway... It's Mr. Rad. I know, he was terrifying, but also great. Yeah. Uh, so, X Factor Forever. So, like we said, this picks up right after Simonson's run. But in our podcast coverage, we've covered a little bit past that. So, all that stuff from X Factor Endgame with Ascani and Nathan Christopher going into the future and the Riders of the Storm slash Dark Riders. Yeah, let's just forget about all that for now. The last thing that happened was Cyber Eye in Japan. And we'll link back to the episode where we covered that in the visual companion to this one so that you can be fresh on that material if you want to be. Now, I should say, you know, you said Endgame never happened, but there are some hints in X-Factor Forever that a lot of the same events of it would at least theoretically have taken place subsequent to this story. For example, Nathan Christopher having gone back in time. Uh, right, yeah, we do get that little link with Cable later on, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. To get behind ourselves, yeah, let's just use that phrasing. Previously on X-Factor... X-Factor, the original five X-Men, that is Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Angel, Beast, and Iceman are public superheroes living in a sentient spaceship slash skyscraper named Ship. They're in the middle of Manhattan, and they are generally public heroes at this point. Now, X-Factor got Ship from Apocalypse, the grand X-Factor villain. After defeating him way back in the Fall of the Mutant storyline, X-Factor has since found that Ship is a monitoring device created by the Celestials, who are these ancient space gods responsible for most of human evolution. They found that out in space, and it was pretty cool. Oh, Judgment War was so great. I think everyone should read that. It's one of my favorite X-Men stories that nobody remembers. Also, Paul Smith forever. Seriously. Now, X-Factor also has a supporting cast outside of the original five X-Men. First, we've got Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. He's the son of Cyclops and Cyclops' now-deceased ex-wife Madeline Pryor. Madeline was a clone of Jean Grey created by glam supervillain-slash-geneticist Mr. Sinister to make sure that Nathan Christopher would be born and someday rise up to defeat Apocalypse. We also have police officer Charlotte Jones, record store clerk Opal Tanaka, and reporter Trish Tilby, respectively the girlfriends of Archangel, Iceman, and Beast. Not to mention Charlotte's adorable moppet of a son, Timmy. I love that kid. Also, Timmy is like the ultimate adorable moppet name. It's, it's almost a moppet cliche at this point. <laughs> You're such a moppet cliche, Timmy. God. That's what Sinister would say. <laughs> it totally is. You're such a moppet cliche, Timmy. God. Finally, we've got Caliban. Caliban is... One of the Morlocks, he is a former ally of X-Factor who threw in his lot with Apocalypse following the Mutant Massacre. So, that's our cast, that's our setup, and I vote we dive into X-Factor Forever number one, aka the other X-Factor number 65. Alright, but we're just going to use the one through five numbering for the rest of this, right? Because I super don't want to have to keep track of this because I'm terrible. That's probably much simpler, yeah. So... It's morning, and Jean Grey offers a tired Scott Summers, tired from baby care overnight, some coffee, at which point he jokingly asks her to marry him, and it's slightly awkward because, as you may remember, at this point in continuity, he had asked her to marry him, and she had said no because of all of the various personalities who were in her head for a while who had previously done so. It's awkward, but it's also the source of one of my favorite Cyclops panels. <laughs> Fair. So, yeah, I mean, from the start, Louise Simonson is bringing us back into the status quo of X-Factor in 1991, back into the dynamic of Scott and Jean as she wrote them, which is really, really distinctive. Like, these are my Scott and Jean. And, of course, the chaos of ship, because moments later, Archangel, Iceman, and Beast all come barreling through on their way to meet their various girlfriends in town. And here is where we see all five of the characters together and all five of their new looks together. And holy shit, do they look snazzy. Man, I love the costume designs in this series so much. Not all of them work for me specifically as uniform designs, but honestly, for this era of X-Factor where they're living as semi-civilians and they're more integrated into society... I think they work, and they're so sharp, and they're so cool, and Cyclops' jacket is so great, and I love that jacket so much, you don't understand how much I love that jacket. Cyclops and Jean both have these asymmetrical yellow-on-black X motifs, so his is on a jacket, the jacket that you've been talking about, and I agree, that is a rad fucking jacket. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a vibe of the um, Frank Quitely and or John Cassidy versions of the jacket, but more tailored. More of a motorcycle jacket, which is pretty cool. And Jean has got 
a shirt whose cut is actually the X design. It's got asymmetrical straps. Um, it's easier to show a picture than to describe. But again, I think it's done very well. And it's a design that could have been awkward and improbable in ways that make me think of, again, a Frank Quietly design, specifically Emma Frost costume, but in this case actually works pretty well and pretty feasibly. And it bugs me that people don't cosplay these and specifically that I don't because I want that jacket so much. <laughs> right. Okay. So Jean's tank top thing, I like aspects of it. I like that it's got the same asymmetrical X that like, you know, one strap is, uh, is wider than the other. And, you know, I, I like that it's sort of loose and casual, like you said. I think that fits this era. But one side of it also goes down and wraps around one of her upper thighs in an X position. And that just seems so weird. Like, if she bends a certain way, it would be all stretchy. I assumed that that was a separate piece, just based on the way it's drawn. I don't know. It's drawn differently in different panels, and especially once the new inker takes over with a number two. But that part's questionable. Overall, though, totally dig the look. So jeans is the one that I have a little bit of trouble with as a superhero costume specifically, because it feels to me like superhero-inspired fashion more than an actual superhero costume. But this version of Jean Grey in this era, where she's a little bit more laid back, she's finally gotten rid of the Phoenix and Madeline personas, she and Scott have reached a good status quo point in their relationship, even if it's still a little tense here and there. She's being a hero, she likes that. Like, I can see her being more chill and less super heroic. I guess that's true, but at this point, she's also the member of the team who's most dedicated to the idea of being and staying superheroes and staying in those roles and personas. Earlier in X Factor, when she was more interested in exploring actual personhood, that would have made a lot of sense to me. Here, less so, although, to be fair, she and Scott are also not sleeping and raising a baby, which I assume does not leave a lot of time for costume design. Still, I feel like she could at least have forgotten a snazzy jacket. I'm just imagining her showing up to fights wearing a bathrobe and sweatpants, just being like, what? I was up all night with this crying kid. Give me a break, Apocalypse. Just both of them perpetually. They just have bags under their eyes. You can even see them under Cyclops' ruby quartz specs. It'd be great. To be fair, Cyclops literally always looks exhausted, pretty much, so... There is that. Now, as for how other people look, so Archangel is just in his original Walter Simonson costume because why mess with perfection? He's exactly the same, and I'm fine with that. Valid. Iceman looks a little different. He's still in his ice form most of the time, but you can visibly see these sort of loose cargo-y pants he's wearing and his hair under it, and I kind of dig that. It's got a little bit more personality, it's a little bit more casual, and that fits the Bobby Drake of this era for me. On one hand, I get the point of that. On the other hand, I can't entirely endorse ice cargo shorts and ice hair. On yet a third hand, because we're talking about mutants here, so I feel entirely justified in having as many hands as I want, I'm generally in favor of anything that makes Bobby Drake canonically more of a dork. Yeah, basically that. And then we have Beast, and Beast is just wearing these long black pants, and, you know, it's, it's a good look, it works for me. Uh, again, we're hearkening back to a uh, later, early 2000s era, but he's got these sort of, like, X logos going all the way down the side of his legs, and it reminds me so much of DJ from Super Street Fighter 2, who has the word Maximum printed down the side of his pants, and I always wanted those pants. Was there ever an X-Men character named Maximum, but, like, with a capital X? I... I don't know why not. I mean, there was that crossover Maximum Carnage, but that was a Spider-Man crossover. Was that actually the character's name or just the crossover name? No, it's just that there was Carnage and I guess he was he was Maximum at the time. Is being Maximum like being extreme? Not quite. Only if you capitalize the X, which, you know, they didn't, but whatever. Anyway, they all have uniforms that are new and great, and they all go to see their assorted girlfriends, like we said. Now, the other character we see here is baby Nathan Christopher, who's here mostly just referred to as Christopher, which was Louis Simon's tendency, and he looks like a, a real baby for a change. This is like the first time we've seen him in ages looking like a real human baby. Honestly, if they hadn't shown the telekinetic bubble around him and referred to him by name repeatedly, I would have assumed he was someone else because I'm so used to seeing that kid drawn as a weird little medieval child adult. <laughs> Seriously. So that's our opening status quo. Now, as everybody's trying to leave to get to their various dates, ship malfunctions a little. The door won't open and they have to break it open. So this has been happening for a little while toward the end of Simonson's run, ever since Judgment War. Right, and specifically... In Judgment War, Ship met back up with its creators, with Ship's creators. Does Ship have a pronoun? Uh, sometimes male, sometimes neutral. It varies. I always thought of Ship as female, but all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with they for now because yeah. So Ship has met back up with their creators, the the Celestials, and as a result of this, some of Ship's background mutant monitoring programs are active again, and they're taking up a huge amount of processing power and thus slightly interfering with normal functions. 
So I'm sure that won't go anywhere, and there's no reason that Simonson brought that up 19 years after finishing her initial X-Factor run. Certainly not. So Iceman goes to pick up Opal Tanaka, and they're all romantic-like. 2010 was still a long time before Iceman came out. Although Opal is skinny again, which always makes me sad. Yeah, agreed. Beast goes to meet Trish Tilby at the airport. She is back from her reporting job in India, which was the last place we left her. And while she was there, she has procured a child. She is adopting this kid, this girl named Priya, who is adorable and charming, who she was um, she was, she was, was reporting at the orphanage where Priya was and fell absolutely in love with this kid and decided she just needed to take her back. They totally bonded. And so, yeah, now Trish has a kid, which is actually pretty rad and interesting. And Beast is... Really cool here. Beast had been kind of an asshole the last time he'd interacted with Trish, and when we'd seen him commenting on her a lot, he is very possessive about her, and he's very, very, very offended when she actually does her job when she's reporting on mutants. And here, he's very cool about it, and he he apologizes in, in very credible ways. I like that Louise Simonson uses this series um, to kind of wrap up some of those little plot points, those dangling things, and just to kind of fix them. Like, I think that was a good plot point to have Beast be a dick to Trish, but it had run its course, and so she just ends it here. Agreed. Now, as Beast and Trish are reuniting at the airport, the hulked-out Caliban is stalking around. He is on a mission. He has killed almost all of the Marauders. These are the operatives of Mr. Sinister who perpetrated the mutant massacre. But there's still one left, and that is Sabretooth. And Caliban has decided that it is his job. He is he is not going to rest until he has tracked down and killed Sabretooth. And as Caliban is watching Beast and Trish, Apocalypse is continuing the cycle of watchingness and watching Caliban. Apocalypse villain explains to us in these cool black speech bubbles that I actually really appreciate that the Celestials may now be coming to judge Earth earlier than they were. I want to break in here and say that my second favorite thing about this series after the jackets, or Cyclops' jacket and the costumes in general, is how Apocalypse always just looks incredibly smug, and he's always doing amazing side-eye, like in every single appearance. You're totally right. It's great. What he's doing right now also is worrying that Earth will fail the fifth host's test and be destroyed, since the existence of mutants may have rendered humanity a genetic dead end. Now, Apocalypse, being a responsible supervillain, decides that the next step is not action, but research. However, to do this research, he's going to have to break into ship, and to break into ship, he's going to have to get X-Factor out of the way. So, having made his one prudent decision for the day, Apocalypse decides that the best way to distract X-Factor is to revive and merge Master Mold and Cameron Hodge. Let's talk about who those guys are. So, Master Mold, I believe you have so famously described as a giant sentinel that poops out other sentinels, which is pretty accurate. And Cameron Hodge is the unkillable former ally of X-Factor that turned out to be the biggest dick in the Marvel Universe. Although at this point, he probably doesn't poop at all, since he's a disembodied severed head. Yeah, he's an immortal cyborg. Long story there. But I gotta say, if you're trying to distract X-Factor, like, these are probably some pretty good choices to do so. Or you could just set up a bunch of walls for them to bust through. No, that doesn't come until later. Uh So, Apocalypse has his plan. Now, Sabretooth also has his plan, too. He is on his way to kill Archangel because they had a big fight a few issues back in Simonson's run, and Sabretooth wants a rematch against this badass challenger. Now, Archangel, for his part, I really like how the narrative gets passed around and passed around. It's got multiple storylines going, but they blend together very organically rather than hopping back and forth. Which is pretty cool. Totally, yeah. So Archangel, meanwhile, is is busy being cheerful and domestic for once in his damn life. He is off taking his girlfriend's son to school. Much to the kid's grandma's grumbly window-based disapproval, that was actually one of my favorite little bits in this series, is that Louise Simonson remembered that Charlotte Jones's mom it, like totally disapproves of Archangel and occasionally hits him with a broom from her window. Okay, I gotta say... While Charlotte Jones is a grown-up who can make her own romantic choices, I'm kind of with her mother-in-law on this. It's her mother-in-law, by the way. It's her, her late husband's mother, not Charlotte's mother. Ah, yes. Good point. Good point. So Timmy asks Archangel about the metal wings. Archangel says they're from a bad guy. He lost his original wings. But Timmy, being the usual font of boundless optimism, innocence, and just awesomeness that he is, has a response to that. If a bad guy fixed my back so I could run again... I'd be glad. I wouldn't care if he was bad. Timmy basically exists to point out Archangel's bullshit. 
the world as a whole kind of exists to point out Archangel's bullshit. I would argue that we kind of exist to point out Archangel's bullshit. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, what the hell? <laughs> Warren Kenneth Worthington III, you go to your room and undo just about every decision you ever made. And pick up those flechettes while we're at it. We're not your maids. <laughs> So, Sabretooth is about to attack Archangel, and presumably also Timmy and anyone else in the vague vicinity, but Caliban catches up with Sabretooth and yoinks him back into the sewers and fucking murders him. Okay, to be fair, we know at this point that this Sabretooth, and every Sabretooth pretty much that we've seen since near the beginning, is a clone because Mr. Sinister's got an endless supply that he just sort of shoots out like a Pez dispenser. Still, though, I mean, Caliban getting to really get revenge on the Marauders, like, this is one of the things I like about Forever Stories, is that there are actual consequences, even if clones will just come back and be more Marauders. So, it's kind of a mixed bag as Catharsis goes. On one hand, he can't kill Sabretooth completely forever in a way that prevents there from being a living Sabretooth running around. On the other hand, he gets to kill him as many times as he wants. Oh, that's a good point. It's kind of like that one thing from Cy Spurrier's X-Force run with Cable. God, that was a great and bizarre run. I loved it so much. Yes, yes, likewise very much. So, now that Caliban's completed his mission, which, as we saw in Simonson's previous run, he abandoned Apocalypse to do, he heads back to his boss. Caliban is a very loyal character. He always has been. Also, Apocalypse turns out to be totally cool with this because he appreciates that his hound has initiative and also is into revenge. I mean, Apocalypse, you know, he tries to be a very good manager, and sometimes you have to let your employees make their own decisions even if they aren't the decisions you yourself would make. Right, you have to give them a certain amount of unscheduled time for their personal projects and or revenge quests. Yeah, it's like Google's 10% uh, time or whatever, it's kind of like that. So, Caliban's next mission, now that he's back from his unauthorized revenge quest— is that he is, he is supposed to retrieve what's left of Cameron Hodge. When last we saw Cameron Hodge, the combined various Heroic X teams dropped a goddamn city on top of his severed cyborg demon immortalized head. After Cyclops and Havoc in combination blew him up like twice. Oh, it was so thorough and so cathartic, and yet it didn't kill him. I mean, to be fair, last time we saw Sinister, that was basically what had happened to him, too. Good point, yeah. So Caliban doesn't like this. He doesn't like working with such an anti-mutant person as Hodge, but he goes to the ruins of Genosha and beats the crap out of a bunch of anti-mutant Genosian magistrates while pondering, okay, so the mutates in Genosha were changed against their will into slaves, but him, he shows his transformation, and to him, that's what makes the difference, and knowing what we know about Caliban, yeah, that makes perfect sense personality-wise. Speaking of people who chose their transformations, Caliban is able to retrieve the severed head of Cameron Hodge, who, in its internment, has somehow metamorphed into the severed head of Richard Keith O'Brien. Yeah, seriously! Why does he look like RKO? I mean, he looks exactly like him. It's very weird. Also, his glasses aren't broken anymore, and now they're red, which kind of annoys me because, like, creepy, one-broken-lens Hodge is definitely my favorite. So he made a deal with Naster the Demon to become immortal, right? Do you think right. his glasses also made a smaller deal with the glasses of Naster the Demon? Kind of like, you know, the Death of Rats from Discworld? No. Oh. Well, I thought it would be cool. I assume Apocalypse just got him new glasses as, like, a fashion statement. Well, I guess so. We do know that Apocalypse loves dressing people. Yeah. But... Caliban and Hodge teleport back. Now, Cameron Hodge, he's never met Apocalypse, but he's certainly heard of him, and he hates Apocalypse. Apocalypse was the one that saved the life of Warren Worthington III, Cameron Hodge's nemesis after Hodge tried to blow up his plane and kill him. Well, did blow up his plane and tried to kill him. Well, not only that, but Apocalypse was the one who equipped Warren with the gear by means of which he then decapitated Hodge. Nonetheless, Hodge does love the idea of getting a new body, which Apocalypse offers him, and also getting a more additional, extreme, Chapter 2, the sequel, Revenge. Speaking of Chapter 2, that brings us to X-Factor Forever, number 2, with the title, appropriately, Diversion. And I love this cover. This cover is fucking hilarious. Yeah, Apocalypse's face on it is kind of goofy and kind of great. He's just, he's so smug. He's so utterly self-satisfied, and... It's just, it's really fundamentally hilarious, and I love it. And I mean, the art is good, but man, Apocalypse's facial expressions are so great. Speaking of great things, we open this issue with Timmy Jones's birthday party. Everyone is there. We've got X-Factor, we've got Charlotte, obviously, since she's his mom. We've got uh, Trish, Priya, Trish's new adopted daughter, and we've got Opal Tanaka. And we also have a panel that shows up a lot in conversations about how Cyclops' powers do and don't work. And it shows up out of context, and I want to discuss this panel because context makes a world of difference here. 
Right, because what we see is Cyclops lighting the candles on Timmy's birthday cake with his optic blasts. But wait a minute. Right, we know that Cyclops' optic blasts don't generally generate heat within the comics continuity. Again, they're not written entirely consistently. This varies, but fairly frequently. And we can actually also assume that this is within that canon because of the next panel, which never gets quoted with the first one in which Cyclops specifies that they're trick candles. And I can just imagine Simonson getting the art back for this issue and being like, no, no, that's not right, Dan Panosian. Crap, how do I fix this? There's no time to change the art. Let's just throw a caption in there. I learned by working with Rob Liefeld how to fix confusing art through captions. Well, this is the dialogue balloon, but this 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 is like a much more professional version of the time I no-prized my own sketchbook. <laughs> I remember that. Well, because people did, did Cyclops' blasts being heat in them. And since the theme of the sketchbook is Cyclops has a good day, I decided that that theme could expand to include worlds in which his optic blast had broader functionality. Okay, kind of like the uh, Lego Marvel world, where he totally has heated optic blasts. No, in that one, they're just heat. No. Well, anyway... Just as Charlotte Jones is making a joke about Timmy wishing that a supervillain would crash the party so he could see a fight, that's exactly what happens. Master Meld attacks. So Master Meld is Master Mold plus Hodge, and his name is Master Meld, and that makes me giggle. I also would like that to be the name of a fancy grilled cheese sandwich of some sort. Oh, man. So I'm recording this before I've had a chance to have dinner, so I'm really excited about a Master Meld. Maybe I'll make one after this. Oh, buddy. Buddy. Master Meld. <laughs> yes. That's much better than the avian version, which is a Master Molt. Oh, God. Or the milkshake, a master malt. Jay, you're on a roll. Well done. I'm sorry. I don't know what I've become. Oh, man. Well, Apocalypse apparently is busy making children's dreams come true because, yeah, big fight. Also, we find that Cameron Hodge's head is in the chest of the giant robot that looks mostly like Master Mold. And I, I love it. What I also love later is that in the fight, which begins right now, when they decapitate Master Mold, Hodge's head then gains its own sentience and jumps out on like a little robot body becoming an independent head, which really fits the creepy, skittery Cameron Hodge we've come to know and love and hate. I also love that apparently that's how Apocalypse designed this. I mean, we know that his judgment is A, questionable, and B, never boring. He's a thoughtful employer. He talked to Cameron Hodge and got an understanding of his priorities and figured that he needed to work skittering into there somewhere. You know, it's like when your boss gives you a really thoughtful uh, holiday present based on some offhand comment you made about liking a thing. Like skittering. <laughs> like skittering. And... In this fight, there are a couple pertinent bits. One is that Jean and Christopher's powers repel each other. So Chris, baby Christopher, has this telekinetic bubble that basically makes him invulnerable. He's, he's just, just sort of this, this big, impenetrable, pink telekinetic beach ball. Now, as it turns out, it and Jean's telekinesis repel each other, which is common among mutants who are related. You know, their powers tend to cancel each other out. Also, Master Meld keeps yelling death to the Twelve, which I resent and take vaguely personally. Why is that? I mean, aside from not wanting the Twelve to die. I mean, that's actually all. I, oh, okay. I, no, it's not even not wanting the Twelve to die. It's just that I feel like no one should ever mention the Twelve. They're one of those things that everyone should be vaguely embarrassed by and just sort of pretend was never a thing. So much potential executed so poorly at the end. Eh, what can you do? There was one really good issue. That's true. That's true. There was. We'll get to that. That one cable issue is great. My wallet's made out of pages from that cable issue, actually. We'll get to it eventually, listeners, but like a long time from now. But anyway, the 12 is just, it's, it's a continuity mess, and I, I feel like it's one of those things you should never deliberately remind people of. <laughs> Probably true. It's like if you're doing, you know, Star Trek, the original series callbacks or extensions, you never go back to Spock's brain. I've never seen Spock's brain, but I've certainly heard of it. Yeah, and that's probably for the best. You, you nod back to, like, a piece of the action or something like that. Or one of the objectively probably better episodes that's not my favorite, which a piece of the action totally is. Balance of Terror. Balance of Terror is good. <laughs> well, anyway, there's a big fight. And you pointed out one other difference uh, between what we'd seen before uh, regarding Cyclops in this case. This is more of the, the updated uniforms. Instead of a visor, Cyclops has fancy glasses, which look nice, work well, and make me wonder why in all of these years no one has bothered giving him glasses with, like, some kind of combined visor functionality, because it makes a lot of sense. Seriously, he wouldn't have to switch back and forth, and maybe he can get one of those little cords that holds the earpieces to the back of his neck so that, like, they don't keep getting knocked the hell off all the time. It would be so easy! So easy! Well, he does a fine job keeping his glasses on here. The only time they actually come off all the way is when he takes them off. Well, you know, here. I'm, I'm talking about elsewhere. So... X-Factor is distracted. In the meantime, Apocalypse and Caliban teleport to ship. And Apocalypse is headed back to ship so that he can look up data on mutant fertility. 
He is concerned that mutants may be an evolutionary dead end and thus the downfall of Earth. Right, because the Celestials are on their way way earlier than he expected. Apparently, they got triggered by the Judgment War when they met Ship, and if they find Earth wanting, they're going to annihilate the shit out of it. So, this whole thing with Apocalypse trying to understand the Celestials' motives and protect Earth from them, and that's why he's been doing all the stuff he's doing, and we'll hear a lot more about that shortly, I actually really buy that. It's Apocalypse as the ultimate unsentimental pragmatist, and that really fits what we've seen of him. That's one of the things I didn't like in X-Factor Endgame, where we find out that apparently he's only in this to get enough strength to fight the Celestials himself to become powerful enough. This works way better for me. Yeah, this is a really interesting take on Apocalypse's motivation, and it brings up what's one of the most perennially interesting questions to ask around a villain, which is basically at what price survival, at what point does having a greater goal justify other atrocities? Yeah, I mean, Xavier's dream has always been about finding a better way, and we see one counter to that in Magneto, and in this version of Apocalypse, we see another interesting counter. I mean, this is a really bad way. I'm not saying it's a good plan, I'm just saying it is intriguing and makes for a great villain. It's kind of the biting off your nose to spite your face theory of survival. Yeah, well... So X-Factor fights Mastermeld, Hodge jumps out, and it's great. And one thing I like about this is that Hodge knows all of their maneuver names. You know, Scott and Gene are like, hey, do this maneuver. And of course he knows what they all are because he's Cameron Hodge. He's the most organized villain in X-Men history. Okay, something else that is great about this iteration of X-Factor is that all of their moves have names. I don't remember what all of them are. I know one of them is the Goliath maneuver. Um, a number of them are also fastball special variations. They have a detailed set of these, and Cyclops isn't the only one who knows them, and it's kind of delightful. Man, now I'm wondering if our podcast should have stuff like that. Like, you know, we're uh, trying to make some kind of a joke without actually getting it into the episode to, like, subtly cue one another. Oh, I want to hear people's suggestions for this because I, I like the idea of these of, of, of us having named moves. That sounds, that sounds pretty delightful. Listeners, this is your task. Throw this into the comments or, you know, wherever. X-Factor, with their effectively named moves, wins, but their victory is short-lived because there is a Celestial in the house. Yes, this is Gaminon, this big yellow dude with a giant mace that looks kind of like one of those honeycomb things from the honeycomb cereal box. Um, and the panel, the full page panel, I should add, where he's revealed, like, looming over the city is so fucking cool looking. Panosian gets the scale down. Miles, that is literally just a honey jar dipper. They're not honeycombs. They're, they're what you dip into honey and then drizzle out. I never knew what they were called. My family never had those. We just used spoons. It seemed very straightforward that way. I mean, yeah, no one actually uses them, but that's what they are. Gaminon does. Also, Gaminon's name sounds perpetually mispronounced in ways that I suspect my last name also does. Maybe. How should you pronounce Gaminon? Maybe Worcester. J. Gaminon Edidin. J. Gaminon Edidin. Okay, you need to introduce yourself that way from now on for the rest of your life. J. Gaminon Edidin III. So what non-J. Edidin Gaminon does when he lands is create a big goddamn tidal wave from the river. And the city is kind of fucked, but thankfully, the Fantastic Four are there. And also Spider-Man, and Thor, and Captain America, and Valkyrie, and Power Man, and Medusa, and Lockjaw, and Iron Man. Yeah, when a big, giant-ass alien lands in the middle of New York, you pretty much have your bases covered. Which I love. I mean, you know, we've talked many times before about the way to up the significance of a threat is to have other heroes show up, be it on monitors talking to the main characters or to show up, like, to join the fight. And we see this, and it's so much fun. This doesn't just up the significance of the threat, though. In fact, I'd argue that that's not what it primarily does. It more firmly establishes X-Factor as a casual and integrated part of New York City's superhero ecosystem. Which is one of the things I love most about the latter parts of Simonson's run. That's something that I, I really miss from her run, in fact. So X-Factor heads into ship to find out what's going on, and they discover that ship is all torn up, um, the power's out, Something is terribly, terribly wrong. And what turns out to be wrong is, of course, that Apocalypse is there going through their files. Right. And so Archangel obviously immediately attacks because he hates Apocalypse, like, so much, dude. So much. But Apocalypse claims to be there for a good reason. X-Factor, I hereby return your ship, somewhat worse for the wear. I have learned everything from this traitorous unit that has tried to destroy all I have accomplished. Traitorous Unit is my new band. That's just what I'm going to call my junk from now on. God, no, it's not at all. I am never going to call my junk Traitorous Unit. But Archangel won't believe any of this. Don't listen to him, psych. It's a trick. 
He's a demon, the master of lies. Not enough writers remember Archangel's just downright vicious, violent hatred of Apocalypse. Simonson does, and it is on full display here. So as they fight Apocalypse monologues, because that's, of course, one of his favorite things to do, and we learn a lot about his origin. Let's talk a little bit about the Apocalypse Journal. The Apocalypse Journal is distinct from both the Apocalypse Files as they appeared in the Endgame story arc and from Strife's Burn Book. The Apocalypse Journal is a series of backup features that appear in each issue of X-Factor Forever and postulate an origin for Apocalypse radically different from the one we've come to know and love from the actual 616 comics that came out between then and now. So this is issue number three we're in right now, but we thought it would make more sense just to cram almost all of this in right now, so let's learn a lot about the X-Factor Forever version of Apocalypse very quickly. The Apocalypse who might have been, but isn't the one who might have been and also might have been a Summers brother. Correct. So, Apocalypse was born in the Stone Age 20,000 years ago. He was outcast for being a shapeshifter and also for having blue lips, but then he found celestial technology and studied it for 2,000 years. Hilariously, this version of Apocalypse is not the gray-skinned monstrosity that you've seen before, and he's not the normal human that Apocalypse allegedly started out as. This Apocalypse looks like a regular dude who took a stick of blue lipstick and just smeared it all over his face like a two-year-old. Oh man, yeah, I was just thinking like some little kid that got a hold of their parents' makeup kit. What we find out from this is that Apocalypse got started refining his makeover technique and technology very early. So what Apocalypse found in this celestial technology, which is to say ship, is that the celestials had messed with human evolution over millennia. They split humanity into three, the godlike, mostly infertile Eternals, the monstrous but fertile Deviants, we've seen both of those other groups in non-X books, and normal humans who were this inferior, shitty control group. So Apocalypse, he was human, but he was anomalous. So he decided to shake up the experiment to save that control group. He learned to control ships' movements, and he went around saving strong humans from the deviant raids to live on his island, which was Atlantis, and also had the Tower of Babel, because it wouldn't be an Apocalypse origin story unless we crammed in a bunch of random biblical historical stuff. Sure, why the fuck not? Exactly. Now, he also made sure that the Celestials learned of the Deviants' attacks, at which point the Celestials destroyed most of the Deviants. Apocalypse then started a war between the Eternals and the Deviants. This bought humanity some time and some space so that he could work on evolving them. Guess how he did that? Punctuated equilibrium? Uh, no, mainly creating mutants, which I guess is kind of punctuated equilibrium. It's badly punctuated equilibrium. It's like equilibrium with interrobangs. <laughs> exactly. Apocalypse during this time also realized he had to work within the Celestials' plans, otherwise he would get nuked the way that the Deviants did. He also also realized that with humanity, war tended to breed progress, but peace was frustratingly necessary to cement that progress. Thus, he encouraged war, even after the third host forbade gods, and he had to kind of take a step back, which actually works really well with why he used to be a big, uh, cool god and then became more subtle. Now, during all of this time, Apocalypse got lonely, so he decided to find a friendly local street urchin, or at least a scrappy and angry local street urchin, to, to bring on as his right-hand man. This, at least in this continuity, and very much not in the 616 continuity, was the one and only Mr. Sinister. Now, Sinister was happy to get more power, but he got resentful at having to do slow, crappy science instead of grand manipulation. Even if he did get to make some cool, cute mutant rats with, like, wings and spikes and extra parts, and these mutant rats in this one single panel are one of my favorite parts of this entire series. They're just adorable. I'm still giggling at slow, crappy science. <laughs> now, Apocalypse for himself, he made the first mutants. They were due to his more subtle manipulation of the human genome over hundreds, if not thousands of years. What he saw during this time was that there was awful Nazi science and awful Genosian science that were probably due to his protege, Mr. Sinister's work. Sinister ruins everything, but he does it really stylishly. That he does. So the two master manipulators fought Apocalypse for Mutants and to prevent the Days of Future Past timeline that the celestial technology had shown him Sinister's plans would lead to, and Sinister for Humans, and also Science, and also Glamness. Which is ironic considering that Apocalypse's entire goal in the beginning was to protect humans and to basically elevate them. The fact, the fact that he's now officially separating humans and mutants seems kind of bizarre and counter to that goal, but whatever. And I think that was more Mr. Sinister's take on it. But regardless, as far as the present day, we find out here that Apocalypse created his horsemen to actually test X-Factor to see if they were worthy of taking ship. They were always a part of his plan. He'd been wondering this whole time about mutant births. Young mutants, I thought. Thrown together. Pregnancies were inevitable. But none occurred. 
And when the Judgment War happened, Apocalypse was worried that the Celestials were now coming to take out humanity due to mutants being dead and Sinister being a dick. And so he has, at this point, been forced to accelerate his plans. So that is our attempted quick uh, recap of the Apocalypse Journal. That's what we know about this version of Apocalypse. X-Factor has only heard about the whole thing with the Celestials and the Eternals and the Deviants and the fact that Celestials may be showing up on Earth soon to just nuke the whole place. And yet they still have a really appropriate and proportional response, or in Cyclops' words, still loves the sound of his own voice, doesn't he? Yes. Yes, he does. Now, X-Factor protests because there are, like, a lot of exceptions here. What the hell? What about, for instance, Baby Christopher, who's right there? Apocalypse basically says, well, he might be a genetic construct like his mother, and then grabs him and flies away. Gassing X-Factor and knocking them out like they're thugs in a Batman the Animated Series episode. Uncool, Apocalypse. What is pretty cool is that when Apocalypse flies away, he has wings that are very clearly similar to Archangel's. That's a nice little link there. Can't he just teleport? I mean, they literally say in the next issue that he teleported away. Well, right, but even if you can teleport, wouldn't it be much more dramatic to shoot knockout gas at your opponents, grab their baby, and fly away on big metal wings? I mean, if you can do that, why wouldn't you? I mean, that is literally how I exit every single room. It got really awkward when we used to live together. I got knocked unconscious by gas a lot. You run out of babies eventually, too? Like, you have to keep borrowing them? Our friends stop trusting us, it's true. So, X-Factor rallies and heads outside to see another Celestial. And this is one we've definitely seen before in X-Factor. This is Arishem, a big red giant space robot whose head looks kind of like a coffee maker. Is he here to wake Earth up? Well, not exactly. He's here to judge Earth. Arishem's whole deal, and I fucking love this. This goes back to the original Jack Kirby conception of the character. Oh, fuck yes. He's got this thumb of doom. When the Celestials come to judge planets, he either gives them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. The thumbs up means, okay, you guys are cool, and the thumbs down means we are annihilating your entire species. Okay, then. I love it. And also, anything that connects X-Factor back to the Judgment War makes me very happy. Now, Jean, once they've woken up from the knockout gas, wants to go straight after Nathan Christopher, but Scott stops her. They have to think. They have to come up with a solid plan and not just fly off half-cocked. Scott points out... He's not in any immediate danger. Nothing can hurt him. He's inside his force bubble. He He's wet and hungry and mad and, and scared, Scott. He's so scared. And so are you, and so am I. And we'll find him. Louise Simonson writes these characters and their relationships so well. Like, I think everybody's got definitive versions of certain characters, but I think everyone also has definitive versions of certain relationships. And for me, Scott Summers and Jean Grey, they are absolutely the characters as written by Louise Simonson in X Factor. Word. So anyway, you don't really need to worry about Christopher. He's basically invulnerable. Now, Apocalypse has left Caliban behind as sort of a, like a liaison with X-Factor, kind of like a jerk tour guide, kind of like an evangelist almost. And, and Caliban argues that, that says that their, their concern is that Chris either isn't actually Scott's or that the fact that he's Scott's and Maddie's and Maddie is a product of Sinister's meddling might effectively negate um, what value his being a kid of a mutant might be. And he points... As evidence for this, what they've, I, I assume they've learned through X-Factor's extended curriculum of catastrophic child endangerment, that while Gene and Nathan's powers repel each other, Nathan's and Cyclops's don't. Okay, two things. One, to clarify, the whole concern here that Apocalypse has is that if two mutants can't produce a viable mutant child, and if mutants are replacing humanity, that means the race is going to die out, and the Celestials are not big fans of that. The second thing... We've seen, like, siblings' powers not work on each other, but the kind of repelling that Jean and Christopher are shown as having with the bubble and the telekinesis, that's kind of a different story. But, you know, whatever. It's a forever title. Yeah, like, Scott and Alex just absorb each other's powers, for instance. It's true. And uh, Black Tom and Banshee, that was a whole thing as well. Also, everyone, including Louise Simonson, has apparently forgotten that the kid's first name is actually Nathan, not Christopher. I'm pretty sure Simonson never wanted Nathan to be his first name. Like, she called him Christopher all the damn time. She seemed very reluctant to accept that plot point. No one wants Nathan to be his first name. I feel like that's a reasonable plot point to be in denial about, given its its origins and context. But the only way to get the kid back is going to be to go meet Apocalypse at Sinister's Digs. So X-Factor gives no fucks about the Celestial situation. They just want to get Nathan Christopher back. But the only way to do that is going to be to go meet Apocalypse, who has headed to Sinister's place for some additional research. 
So, X-Factor are concerned about leaving New York during this whole celestial invasion thing, but Chip points out there are 147 other superheroes that are holding on the fort, so it's probably okay. I mean, they do have the largest piece of celestial technology on Earth and probably the only viable means of communicating with the celestials, but, you know, let's not go too deeply into that. It's fine. Iron Man will just punch giant robots. It'll work out great. This is a terrible plan. Well, they do get to Sinister's base, and this is another of my favorite parts in the series. As Beast says, Sinister enters via teleportation, as will Apocalypse, but we, and Cyclops replies, have our own methods. And then he blasts a fucking hole in the wall because it's X-Factor. I mean, I kind of feel like if you're going to revisit what made X-Factor X-Factor, you have to have them at least knock down one wall instead of going through a door. Like, you just have to. As many as possible, ideally, but this one is pretty good. And Caliban continues to make his case for Apocalypse's reasoning, and it basically turns into an extended No True Scotsman argument over every single other second-generation mutant because Wanda and Pietro's mom was magic, except that's not really true. And... um Legion is a super weirdo, so he doesn't count, and they don't even bring up Luna, who's technically a third-generation mutant, or at least would have been at that point because it was before Wanda and Pedro had been retconned to not be Magneto's kids, but then there's still Polaris. So I don't even know what the fuck. The point is that Caliban's being a, a jerk about this, and this is stupid, stupid reasoning. Also, part of his argument is that none of the members of X-Factor have had kids with their partners, and like in the Apocalypse Journal, he mentions that, for instance, Colossus and Shadowcat never had kids? Like, Apocalypse, are, are you confused about, like, who does and does not have sex and why and when and whether birth control exists? Okay, first of all, I love the idea of Apocalypse not really understanding how babies are made. <laughs> but second, what this is telling me is not that mutants are not a viable species, it's telling me that mutants are responsible about contraception. Right? I mean, I feel good about that. Like, all of the characters that he brings up, like, you also see Boom Boom and Richter. I feel oh like, you know, God. at least one of them would be vaguely responsible. Yeah, um, yeah, I think Apocalypse is just really, really baffled. I don't think he understands how babies work, and I really don't think he understands contraception. He never got past when a man and a woman, woman love each other very much, they make a baby in the woman's tummy. Like, that's as, that's as specific as it ever got for him. Apocalypse doesn't even know what uteruses are. It's true. Like, Although now I just want to hear him say the word uterus over and over. Okay, no, no, uterus! no, no, dude. Apocalypse narrates your changing body, a video for teenagers. <laughs> I love this plan. Well, anyway, all of that aside, what Apocalypse wants right now, now that they've met up with him, is for X-Factor to be a diversion while he himself checks out Mr. Sinister's gear to see whether Nathan Christopher is indeed a construct. Okay, I'm still stuck on the Apocalypse sex ed thing, though. Um, you remember that that old, like, PSA movie thing? So when, I don't remember the character's name, like, maybe Lisa's movie about periods. The one where Buzz Hickey from Community asked a girl whether her period had caused the rain. <laughs> No, I don't remember that. I swear to God you've seen this. It's real. I, I need to again, apparently. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, he's like a teenager at the time. He doesn't do it as, as Buzz Hickey from Community because it's like 30 years before then. But Like, Jay, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I need to watch this immediately after we record. Also, you should probably link it in the visual companion. I swear to God it's real. Even if it's not, now the idea's out there, so that's at least something. The point is you got to imagine Apocalypse's movie about periods, or Apocalypse's film about periods. Is that the title of our episode? Have we found the title of our episode? No, I really just want it to be Your Changing Body narrated by Apocalypse. It has to be called something like Your Changing Body or something really abstract because he's got to have like, he's got to have a window to take it in really, really wrong directions that just, <laughs> just have nothing to do with what he's supposed to be talking about. So I feel like we're getting a little off track here. You might notice that the flechettes with which you have been equipped contain neurotoxin. This is normal. <laughs> and awesome. Well, anyway, as Apocalypse villain explains to himself about what puberty is like in a world defined by celestial technology, X-Factor goes deeper into Mr. Sinister's laboratory and finds a bunch of clones in big tanks of liquid. All of the clones are dressed up in full uniforms, which seems really weird to me, but whatever. Now, specifically, X-Factor is here. Apocalypse has X-Factor here so that they will keep Mr. Sinister occupied while Apocalypse uses Sinister's gear to see what's up with Nathan Christopher. And X-Factor decides, you know, what the hell, they're just going to go along with it. There's also a brand new Sabretooth because, 
no one can eat just one. And Sinister shows up to just smarm the hell out of the entire scene. Scott, the baby's here. I can feel him. To which Sinister responds, Good call, Jean. I can call you Jean. I feel that I know you, down to the very atoms of your soul. As for your precious son, Cyclops, just step through here into my dedicated neonatal vault. I've created several variations on that theme. Pick whichever son you choose. To the left, we have the Nathan Christopher model. This is the one from the Ascani feature who will grow up into Cable. This Nathan Christopher comes equipped with a bionic arm, a fancy eye, and kung fu grip. To your right, you'll see Nate Gray with mesh shirt action and convenient hair streak. And down the middle, who's that? That's Rachel Summers. That's not Nathan Christopher at all. What's she doing here? We don't make action figures of girls. Wait, sorry. I'm sorry. I just got really sarcastic in the middle of that. <laughs> I think it's uh, entirely warranted, but X-Factor is unimpressed with these assorted Summerses, Nathan and otherwise. Although there is a pretty great moment when Jean calls for Christopher and Sinister assumes that she has somehow recognized that the clone of Cable here is also Nathan Christopher. It's a nice little nod. Yeah, um, so X-Factor attacks and they they break a lot of the clone containers and the rest of them Sinister lets out and everyone fights. Cyclops blasts Sinister so hard that he burns out his powers, which is a pretty cool moment. And then he and Jean have a mid-fight moment and then everyone keeps fighting. But suddenly, Apocalypse comes to the rescue. He gives the baby back to X-Factor. Apparently, Nathan Christopher is not a genetic construct of Sinister. He is, in fact, the mutant child of two mutants. The mutant race is viable. Hooray! Wait, is Madeline a mutant? Well, I mean, she was a clone of Jean, so I'm going to say, at least in the context of this story, yes. Apocalypse decides he's going to stay behind and hold off the clones, sends X-Factor and Nathan Christopher off to parlay with the Celestials or whatever, and uh, Sinister's lab with everyone inside it, except for X-Factor, I mean, with, with Apocalypse and Sinister and the clones inside it, explodes. Right, Apocalypse just sacrificed his life to take out Mr. Sinister and to give X-Factor the chance to save humanity. It's very heroic if we actually believed that he was really dead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, no, he fucking didn't. Even X-Factor comments on the fact that he is clearly not actually dead, and in fact, both of them can teleport, and they've killed both of them before. But still, it is a sweet goddamn moment. Like, he tells them that the future of humankind is in their hands. It's super noble-seeming, and even if it is hollow because Apocalypse is a manipulative dick, I... I like the idea of him not being a horrible person, and it's very satisfying, and I gotta say, I got some some strong feelings here. Like, you know, I had to sort of take a moment and go, oh, and Sabaner, he's trying to, like, help people and trust X-Factor, and that's great. So X-Factor heads off to face the Celestials and to prove to them via Nathan Christopher's existence that mutants are not an evolutionary dead end, and they do this by lobbing the force-bubbled Nathan Christopher at Arashem. Because sure... Arashem catches Nathan Christopher. Apparently he can, you know, read Nathan Christopher's genetic signature through Braille or something. And he gives Earth a great big thumbs up. Good job, Earth. I mean, I know this is like a Roman Colosseum thing, and that was the idea when it first came out, and the thumbs up probably wasn't the same kind of super casual symbol uh, that it is now when Jack Kirby did those comics, but it makes me happy. But yay, Earth is going to be okay. Well, most of Earth is going to be okay, because once they've settled on not killing the entire planet, the Celestials head to Genosha. Because apparently, just like Apocalypse sick the Celestials on the Deviants that one time, and the Celestials annihilated the Deviants almost, now he's done the same. He's let the Celestials know about what Genosha has been doing to mutants to the next stage of humanity, and the Celestials... They're going to leave Earth in general, but they are going to completely disintegrate Genosha and everybody on it, which includes, you know, Havoc and Wolfsbane and, like, millions of citizens, most of whom are probably not terrible people. I mean... Okay, some of whom are not terrible people. So X-Factor is panicking. They call the leader of Genosha, Chief Magistrate Anderson, but she's just scrambling the military to fight them. Lady, you've seen at least one monster movie, right? I mean, you know when you have a robot or monster or whatever that big, if you send fighter planes at it, they're just going to piss it off. Okay, this is the Genosian military. They are fueled entirely by hubris. Okay, valid, valid point. So it is consistent, but I gotta say... Panosian, the artist, does a really good job at conveying X-Factor's just sheer panic and frustration and rage as they futilely try to convince Anderson to evacuate the island. And also, Panosian's art showing the scale of the celestial 
army that is now present. Now there aren't just two, there are like 40 that materializes over Genosha. This is some impressive shit. Like, I was getting really into the story by this point. Like, my emotions were right there with X-Factors. So, X-Factor manages with, with ship to teleport some of the citizens aboard and to rescue others who are attempting to evacuate, but not all. Fortunately, they do manage to rescue all of the characters with names. So, you know, that's the important thing in the end. And just as they do, Arashem turns his thumb downward, and with a BOOM, Genosha is turned into racist dust. X-Factor cleans up, manages to gather up the rest of the survivors and get them out of out of the oceans and onto ship to uh, drive off oncoming sharks, which are kind of an issue sometimes. And Cyclops knows about that. He's good at that. Yeah, Cyclops is pretty good at fighting off sea life in a pinch. Mm-hmm. Comes up a surprising lot. And they speculate about what Apocalypse's motivation was. Was it guilt over his manipulation of the human genome, making the Celestials almost annihilate the world? Was it fear of what they could do? Was it some scheme they haven't really wrapped their brains around at all? The final words, though, in the conclusion go to Scott and Jean. As Scott says, Whatever the future holds, good or bad, we'll face it together. And that's basically X-Factor. That's X-Factor summed up right there in that last little bit. Psych! Apocalypse totally gets the last word because we do have one final installment of the Apocalypse Journal. Now, the chapter of the Apocalypse Journal in issue number five mostly focuses on Apocalypse being very confused that a bunch of mutant teenagers haven't immediately created a bunch of mutant babies. But I did want to save his last little bit for the end here because I think it works really well. If you are seeing this, X-Factor... And my plan has succeeded. I am gone. Sinister and his works are destroyed, and you have delivered proof of mutant viability to the Celestials in the body of your young son. Beyond this, I have done what I could to protect our kind from the dark and terrible events that I believe lie ahead. The future is now in your hands. Shape it wisely. Okay. I gotta say, A, I really like the idea of semi-heroic apocalypse. I mentioned that. It just makes me happy. Yeah, that is that is a cool take on the character. And it's one that gives him depth that I think he generally has lacked otherwise. I, I was gonna say, yeah, this is actually the first time up until this point in continuity that I've ever believed Apocalypse had any kind of actual plan, that he wasn't just winging it and saying he planned it all along. I mean, not a very good plan, but a plan. Right, and you know, credit where credit is due. So, yeah, that's X-Factor Forever. I gotta say, I really, really like this miniseries. Yeah, no, this is solid. It's really fun. It's visually great. The writing is solid, and it feels like a very organic continuation of Simonson's run on X-Factor. Now, I really like Endgame, so I'm on the fence. I don't necessarily wish that this is the version that we'd seen but this is definitely worth a read if you're a fan of the the Simonson X Factor. And even if you're not, it's worth a read just for that fucking amazing, gorgeous, perfect, phenomenal jacket. <laughs> yeah, that's the great thing about comics. You have Earth 616 if you like Endgame. You have Earth TRN 237 if you like X Factor Forever. Both exist. Both you can spend your hard-earned money on, on Marvel Unlimited or whatever you want to do. Mostly, though, jackets. Mostly jackets. Meanwhile... You've got questions, and I think, Jay, for once, uh, you have answers to both of these, and I have none. So I'll just read you some questions, and you can tell us Hey, I suspect you're going to want to weigh in on the second one, but... Well, first, Ryan asks on Twitter, who would be in the DC version of the Hellfire Club? Now, Ryan, as you may know, Miles and I are not really DC guys. We have nothing against it, but we do not have a lot of in-depth knowledge of that universe. Mine is basically the DC animated universe, plus Starman, plus some of the most recent Manhunter series, and like little fits and starts around those, but not much beyond that. Um, Miles, my understanding is that yours is about the same. About the same, yeah. I mean, I have a Starman tattoo on my back, but I just really like that book specifically. It's a really good book, and it's really pretty well self-contained, which is is one of the things that I love about it. But, um, so I I reached out to a couple of external consultants, in this case, um, expert Batmanologist Chris Sims, and cartoonist and general continuity maven uh, Max Carlton, whom you've heard on this podcast before talking about the X-Men anime, and whom we've mentioned as the cartoonist behind the terrific strip Waiting for the Trade. And after consulting with them, we we collectively, the three of us, have come up with a fairly credible Hellfire Club. So part of the problem with this is that there aren't a lot of female analogs to the female characters in the Hellfire Club 
in the DC universe. So we've 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 slightly generalized from there a little bit. It's also worth pointing out that there is an actual DC universe organization whose ranks are taken from chess chess pieces. That's Checkmate, which is an entirely different thing. So here's my Hellfire Club, at least one iteration of it. Um, the and I, I didn't divide up between black and white courts because I don't care quite enough to. Sorry. It's kind of arbitrary anyway. Um, and. We decided also that this Hellfire Club is probably Gotham-based because it's the kind of organization that tends to be Gotham-y in general. Um, so we've, we've got the kings are, are Lex Luthor and Rajal Ghul, the latter of whom will be replaced at some point for some period of time by Bruce Wayne. And the queens are a character named Jeanette, with whom I am not familiar, but whom Max assures me belongs there, and Alice who is one of several villain, DC villains named Alice. So specifically in this case, the one who is Batwoman's creepy evil twin. You know, I know three of the four of those characters, and that actually makes a lot of sense to me. And you would even have the constant power struggles that you always had within the Hellfire Club and X-Men, because all of those are such strong personalities. I mean, Rachel Ghoul working with people, Lex Luthor working with people, that would be a lot of fun. Those would be some fun black and white themed fireworks. Lex Luthor is a people person. He's just a wildly manipulative and, and megalomaniacal people person. You know, he always wants to be in charge. But so does Rachel Ghoul, and so does Alice, and presumably that other lady, too. That seems reasonable. But yeah, and I assume also that Amanda Waller is secretly pulling the strings from somewhere, because I assume that about literally anything that happens in the DC universe. Oh, so she's the equivalent of the Shadow King, based on the continuity we've been covering, then. She's just God. I'll take it. Okay, so an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr... So, as has been discussed, X-Men has pretty non-existent trans representation. If slash when Marvel introduces a trans X-Man, would you rather they introduce a new character or out an existing character as trans? Why? If the latter, who? Both. So, I think they should do both. I don't think there's any reason for them not to. I mean, you'd get the same objections that you got with Iceman coming out, but they'd be bullshit for largely the same reasons. Yeah, I mean, people come out later in life. You've certainly talked about that, and... Yeah, I was going to say, like, I was, what, 30, 31, which makes me older than the canonically perpetually 28-year-old X-Men? Mm-hmm. I guess, probably. But the point is, there are a lot of options. And I think, first of all, there are there are a number of fanon favorites for this. Um, so Rogue, for instance. I've heard Rogue mentioned as uh, a character that could be read as trans before, yeah. That that would be a character who had, had already already transitioned. She would be a trans-feminine character. Um Another character who gets brought up, or set of characters who get brought up a lot in context of this, are Wolverine and Wolverine, um, Logan and Laura, because you have an original and a clone who are different, different genders. And the question of whether they, in fact, have different gender identities, and also whether, in fact, they are actually genetically different or not, comes up. Because Logan, for example, is pretty easy to headcanon or to, to justify into a transmasculine character. Um, first of all, he's really short, which is the thing. He adopts a kind of very defensive, performative masculinity that's common to a lot of trans guys. But there are, you could also read or look at Laura as potentially transmasculine. Also, the fact that Logan's healing factor heals him to something approximating his self-image basically effectively would explain how how he's you know how how he was effectively able to to transition via his mutation we did find out in the weapon x storyline that his hair heals back that way every time so there you go exactly if it can if it can do haircuts it presumably can be somewhat aware of gender identity now in terms of characters coming out as trans and transitioning i think sky's the limit there's a whole generation of younger and Younger X-Men who have been raised in a more open-minded world with access to lexicons and resources that their older counterparts didn't have. There are also older characters who, like Iceman, are, you know, fighting their footing in, in a new world. A character who, God, see, this, this has become more complicated after Death of X and IVX than it would have been beforehand, but a character I would have gone to, I would have loved to have gone to right away before, because it would have fit seamlessly into their existing backstory as Emma Frost. I could totally, totally see that. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I think having a transfeminine Emma Frost for whom there wasn't a huge coming out story, for whom it was just something that was there, would have been a really 
neat development of the character. I mean, I think it would have to have been done very carefully and it would have to have been done very right because there are a lot of ways you could write that character, read that character or extend that character that fit into a lot of really damaging um, existing stereotypes of trans women. And so I think I think you'd need someone who who was aware of that stuff and also had a perspective on the character that they could they could develop in ways that didn't just reflect those but i i think that i think that would be i think that would be incredible and i mean i think there are there are tons of others too um we have we have a friend actually someone else who's appeared on the podcast um crystal fraser who was is was in our last summer special playing um i think jubilee yeah, I used to do used to write trans headcanons for any character you sent her on tumblr and i will see if i can find a link to those because they are all pretty terrific but in general, I think I think there are a lot of ways you could go with that, a lot of directions you could take it. The trick would be doing it mindfully and carefully and doing it with a wide enough range of representation that you wouldn't have one character standing in for all the trans people. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly talked before about how when you have, you know, one person headlining an entire demographic, then everything falls on them. Everybody wants them to represent every aspect of that demographic. And so having more gay X-Men characters, having more trans X-Men characters, more non-white X-Men characters, that's only ever a good thing. I mean, the whole freaking theme of the comic is diversity, so that would be rad. Yeah, so going back in summary, my basic take on this is more representation is better. I want to see a range of trans characters in X-Men, and I would like to see them as characters who've, who've come out and who've transitioned in different contexts and at different stages of their lives. And so I think that that opens doors for both of both both existing and new characters pretty well. And I'd also like to see other, you know, more generally gender divergent X-Men. So non-binary X-Men who don't necessarily identify as trans, for instance, or agender X-Men. Uh, we are an entirely listener-supported co- podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and entities, and I am turning the mic over today to the Grand Master of Glam Genetics himself, Mr. Sinister. Was I a Victorian scientist who went too far to save his dying wife? Or perhaps a street urchin who leapt at the chance for more power? It doesn't matter. What does matter, Apocalypse? is that I have a laboratory full of perfect clones of Max Lanetto and Tony Basile, and they, like me, will stop at nothing to see your self-serving schemes fail utterly. Max and Tony, my marauders, fight to your deaths, if you please, again and again and again. And let's hear from everyone's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. What hubris, Peter Tchaikovsky. What desperate folly that the very machinations intended to save the world around you, to save your entire species, would in fact lead to its ultimate downfall at the hands of Joel DePippa. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including a visual companion to every episode. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be back in main continuity. As shit gets real and sexy on Muir Island. Muir Island.